Good morning, everybody. I'm Linda. We'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God to holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together of the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authority in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he has accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of, of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, this is a great one to keep them open. As you've probably heard in the reading there, there's a lot of richness to this that sometimes it's a little bit of unpacking, a little bit of unpicking. So if you have your Bibles open to follow along, uh, that'll help you a lot in the talk. Uh, for now, how about I pray and then we'll dig into God's Word. Gracious Father, we thank you that you've gathered us here together in your name. Lord, I pray that all the worries of the week past and all the anxieties of the week ahead, Lord, may be stilled, at least for this moment, as we meditate on your word. And Father, by your spirit, convict us of the things we need to be convicted of and help us to turn to Jesus as the source of all good things. In this we pray in his name. Amen. Well, growing up, uh, the household dinners were a little bit fraught in my family, they were occasionally very, very difficult because my mum would often spend a lot of time cooking these amazing dinners. 
Uh, often she'd begin early afternoon and be adding flavours and ingredients and all kinds of things to create a meal that was often full of goodness, uh, full of nutrition and full of flavour, only for the four boys, my poor mum had four boys, would turn our noses up at her meals. And the reason for this is because the best meals mum would make were fish fingers with microwaved veggies. And I mean, it's like so much easier than doing what she did, right? Like, we, I didn't really understand why she was bothering with all that complicated stuff. Now, the best meals mum would make were fish fingers with these veggies, and I think that they were 10 out of 10, the most delicious thing on the face of the planet. In fact, those were the meals worth praising mum for, especially if they were drowned in a heaping lot of tomato sauce. And yet, as I matured, as I grew up, as I got older, I became more accustomed to different tastes, different textures in my food. And I very quickly realised how simple and gross fish fingers were, really. And I also found out that it's basically fish crumbs that were sort of scraped into a barrel, clumped together and then given to kids. So I really began to appreciate how good my mother's cooking was. As I matured, I even realised how uh, undernourishing fish fingers were for me as well. And nowadays, if I were to sit down and someone served me a plate, I would say it basically amounts to suffering having to eat fish fingers. You see, there'd be no way that I would want to go back after knowing what's out there in the world of good food. Uh, though I should add, for my kids, as recently as this morning, fish fingers is still their favourite meal. Now, in today's passage, Paul, he prays that we would be matured, that our tastes would develop, that we would be strengthened, particularly so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith that we would develop a taste for God that goes beyond the simple and the bland, that understands the richness and the depth of his love for us in Jesus. And he particularly prays this so that our faith won't buckle under the pressures and discouragements of life. Now, Paul in Ephesians, to give a bit of context, he is a living, breathing example of this. So he's a man who currently is in prison as he's writing this letter. Uh, we see this in verses 1 and 13. And yet he's showing no signs of seeing this as a reason to be discouraged or to waver in the faith. In many ways, this is Christian maturity. And while today we're not being imprisoned for the gospel, at least not yet, though I do see sort of rumblings of this on the horizon, I suspect it is coming. Uh, we are certainly, if we were to join in that street evangelism you heard about earlier, we are seen as stupid and foolish for believing in a dead Messiah. We're often tempted to hide away from the faith that we boldly profess that we have between these walls and then go out there kind of like a dog with our tail between our legs, sort of water it down a little, soften it up a bit. You know, maybe let's not mention sin in the way we evangelise. You know, let's not mention God's judgement. And sadly, some churches, you will even find this within the walls, the gospel watered down. We want to try and fit in with the world. We want to try and be nice. And in particular, when the world pressures us, we want to keep our mouths shut because that's just your religion. You know, don't, don't push your religion on to me. But in Ephesians 3, we're called to be matured in Christ, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in verse 16. 
to see the reality of Christ's love in all of its width, in all of its length, height, and depth, and the manifold wisdom of God revealed in saving even you. You who were once dead in your transgressions and sins, you were outside of the household of God, destined for hell. Now you are completely saved by his grace, as God welcomes you through the gospel with open arms, as a father welcomes his child. In other words, Paul prays here in chapter 3 that we would see the reality of who we are in Jesus secured in the heavenly realms to the extent that all the worries, all the temptations to shy away, to back off, the things that tempt us to kind of give in a little bit or even strip us away from God completely, to stop us from being bold and living for him, that they would be nothing, that, that outside the church we would actually be strengthened to live consistently both inside and out, that all the temptations that we do face in this world, and not even negative ones, like positive ones, for, for riches and, and for status and all of this, that all these temptations would look like measly little fish fingers served on a plastic plate in comparison to the rich feast that God has for us in Christ. And so this forms the basis of Paul's prayer for us in 14 to 19. Uh, and this is where we're going to start. So if we have um, the next slide, if that's all right, I've just put up a very basic structure of today's verse. So you notice as we had it read in the NIV and probably in most of your translations, after the first verse, you have this long dash. And this is the editor's way of saying, oh, Paul's had a break here. He's had a second thought that he wants to talk about quickly. And so he begins, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and he stops and goes, hang on, I need to talk about this for a minute. And then only in verse 14 does he come back and says, for this reason, once again, and he continues that initial thought that he paused. So we're going to begin in verses 14 to 19, looking at the prayer right at the end, uh, looking how Paul prays for his reader's maturity. Now, if you were to flip back to chapter 2, this morning, we'd see that as Gentiles, we were dead in our transgressions and sins in 2.5. That by nature, we are children of wrath in 2.3. But that God reconciled us all, both to one another and to himself in Christ Jesus. That's a horizontal reconciliation between all of us together and a vertical one between us and God. And so what this means is that you're in. You're now part of the Salvation Club where previously you were out. But not only this, you're now members of God's household. So you're considered family now, right? You've got access to the fridge. You can put the feet up on the couch. You can wear flannel shirts around the house. You can do whatever you like. The problem is being members of God's household, being someone who follows Christ, it often comes, as we do know full well, with the reality of fierce opposition as well. In fact, this is why I think Paul includes mention of his imprisonment in verse 1 and his sufferings in verse 13. He's saying, yes, the world will try to pull you away from Christ. I mean, look at me. I'm living proof of this. It's a fact, but don't be discouraged by any of this. If anything... The things that are putting pressure on you in the world, they're a sign that you're on the right track. And withstanding this pressure is a sign that you are, in fact, maturing in Christ. 
So Paul subtly, he gives his own proof of this in verse 1. Uh, you'll notice here he says, he doesn't say he's a prisoner of Rome. He doesn't say he's a prisoner of the Jews or anything like that. He calls himself in 3.1 a prisoner of Christ Jesus. That is, he's Jesus' prisoner. Right? This is a, a very subtle stab at his captors, to his accusers, saying, look, if I'm a prisoner of anyone, it's a prisoner of Christ and not of you. Because at the cosmic level, he knows, as he's already said explicitly back in 121, that all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion are placed in subjection under Christ. So if he is a prisoner of anyone, it's of Jesus. To put it the other way, his earthly imprisonment, by comparison, it means nothing to him. And this then becomes the basis for him to encourage the Ephesians not to be discouraged either. No, instead he wants them and us here today to be brought to maturity where all these worries and issues are put in their proper place. And so to unpack this, we're going to be looking at the content of Paul's prayer in verses 14 to 19, and we're going to see some of the things that Paul prays for us in Christ. So firstly, he reminds us of our unity in Christ. He reminds us of our unity in verse 14, saying that the whole family of God derives its name from the Father. Now, the NIV that we had read this morning, uh, if you heard that one, it said, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every, name, every family derives its name. And when you read the words every family, it sounds like there's a collection of families all around that kind of gather together. Uh, but this can actually be translated in a different way, which I think is far more helpful. And I think it captures more of the essence of what Paul's saying here. Uh, literally, this can be translated the whole family deriving its name or the entire family. That is one family, not a collection of individual ones. Every family. We're reminded that we are unified in Christ. In fact, this is a very big theme in all of Ephesians. If you were to read it cover to cover, this unity is one of the big things Paul goes for. Secondly, in verses 16 to 17, he prays that out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, this is a fairly big one. He's praying that while you're in the thick of many competing influences, like persecution, perhaps imprisonment in Paul's instance, that your inner being be strengthened with power. If you happen to flick back to chapter 119, uh, these are the same words used to talk about raising Jesus from the dead. He was raised with might and power. Now, why are we to be strengthened with might and power? It's order that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, because this is the very core of what we do as Christians. In other words, he's praying that you would stand firm and mature in the faith, not letting worldly troubles knock you off your foundation in Christ. So he prays for their maturity. He prays that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. Thirdly, Paul prays, he says, you being rooted and established in love may have power together. Again, there's the unity part, power together. With all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. 
Now, here in these verses, these are pretty popular verses. If you go to Kurong or any Christian bookshop, they're the types of ones that you'll see on postcards or fridge magnets. Uh, they're the types of ones that often go across the, the Christian airwaves to magnify our understanding of the love of Christ. It's long and high and deep and wide. It's just so massive. But if you read Ephesians in context, I actually think this is a metaphor for everything that Paul has addressed up until this point. Everything we see in chapters 1 and 2, which we haven't had the privilege of hearing this morning, but I want to encourage you to read it in your own time. Because I think we're meant to see, for example, that God's love is wide enough to reach the whole world. That is, both Jew and non-Jew, Gentile, everybody. One of the core themes, again, in Ephesians. It's long enough to stretch from eternity past, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world in 1-4, to eternity ahead. It's high enough to raise us into the heavenly realms where we are currently seated in 2-6, and it is deep enough to rescue us from our total depravity where we were dead in our transgressions and sins in 2-1. I think all of this is a summary statement to show how far-reaching God's love is. And what a great summary I think it really is. But just as we think, wow, this is huge, like any good game show host on TV, he gives another bombshell. He kind of goes, but wait, there's more. Guess what? Christ's love goes even beyond this. In fact, it surpasses human knowledge in verse 19. That's a pretty remarkable thing to say. In fact, is Paul confused here? Is he saying that God's love is, is some kind of paradox, that, that we can know it but not really know it? Like how, how can we know something that we can't know? What exactly is he saying here? Now, he's not saying that we will never understand God's love. Uh, it doesn't surpass knowledge in the sense that we can't understand anything about it. Uh, because if it did do that, then why even stand here talking about it? If it's like speaking another language that has zero meaning to us, if it's impossible to understand, then it's pointless even really talking about it. No, rather, what he's implying here is that this love surpasses knowledge. He's implying that we will never exhaust the riches of his love. We'll never get to the bottom of it. We can dig and dig and dig and dig, and we'll never reach the end of it, no matter how hard we try. In fact, we will spend eternity in heaven exploring with awe and wonder at the riches of God's love for us in Jesus, and even that won't be enough to fully grasp it. I think that's what Paul means here in verse 19. And once we get this, that, that we're loved with a love that goes far beyond what our minds can even comprehend, to know something of the unknowable, Paul says once again, this will lead us to an assurance, to a strengthening in Christ. Uh, Paul calls this in verse 19 being filled to the measure, so, so to the, filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So his prayer we've looked at is for unity, that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith, and that as a result of meditating on or contemplating his incomprehensible love, that we would be strengthened and matured in Christ. So verses 14 to 19, this section, it's Paul's prayer for his readers. It's his prayer for you and me here today, that we would be strengthened, that we would grow up in Christ and really get this. But before he gets to this point, 
uh, he goes on a tangent. So if you remember what we had earlier on, the outline there, uh, he said, for this reason, then he had that thought bubble where we saw the long hyphen, only re to return back to it in verse 14. What we're going to do now is rewind the tape a little bit, and we're going to go back to this tangent and see what brings him into this point in the first place. So Paul, he prays for his readers' maturity, but first he explains this mystery now revealed. Now, I don't know if any of you are mystery buffs, if you like the crime dramas on TV where they're slowly picking clues, trying to uncover, zooming in, enhancing, zooming in again, enhancing again in some kind of amazing mythical technology. If you love putting pieces together in order to solve something, then unfortunately you're completely on the wrong track when it comes to a mystery here in Ephesians 3. It's a bit of a bait and switch there. You see, when the scriptures talk about a mystery, they're not talking about something that you can kind of pick apart, piece together, and then figure it out. Rather, a mystery in, in the biblical sense is so often something that was covered up, right, out of sight, behind a veil, away from understanding. There's no solving these particular mysteries, even with the various clues we might have from other parts of scripture. And so a solved mystery, got to put solved in inverted commas there, it's basically something that was previously hidden and now has been revealed by God himself. That is, the curtain has been pulled away and you can finally see it. And this is the idea we have to have in mind when thinking about the mystery of Christ, as Paul puts it in verses 2 to 13 here. There's something that was previously hidden, but now has been made known to us. So with that in mind, starting at verse 2, Paul says this. He says, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Paul says that the magnitude of God's plan to, to include even the Gentiles, the nations, uh, probably most of us in this room, basically the whole world into his household, this was previously hidden. But now it's been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. That is, that through the gospel, Gentiles are now heirs together. We get the inheritance along with Israel. We're sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. That's the mystery revealed in verse 6. Now, most of you are probably sitting there, folded arms, thinking, well, I know that. It's not a great surprise for me. It's not really that mind-blowing, right? That's why we gather together each week. Well, the reason for this is because we've had 2,000 years to come to grips with this reality. We do tend to take this for granted. Right, that you can be here a saved sinner, it's not really news for you. You've had 2,000 years of creeds and documents proclaiming and outlining your salvation in Christ. You know that the offer of salvation is open to the whole world, and so it might not give that feeling of impact for us that perhaps we should have. 
But now let's cast our minds to Paul's context just for a bit. Let's leave our seats here in this room and consider his context. Right, this news, it was hot off the press, where there was a fresh hope that arrived for a people previously destined for hell. Consider Paul's context where the Jews, they knew that they were God's chosen people and now all of a sudden the magnitude of God's love is so big, it is blown so far open and wide that the offer of salvation now goes open to all people by grace. It's free, simply by believing. You don't have to follow a bunch of customs and and rituals. It's simply through faith in Jesus and everything comes out of that. Now, the thing that wasn't a mystery in Paul's day was the fact that some of the Jews, they they understood this, and they were pretty upset by this news. Some of them really hated it. They were part of this amazing exclusive club, and then bang, all of a sudden, it's open to everybody. And in particular, if you read through Acts, you see how much they wanted to stop Paul from spreading this news. In fact, we know that uh, one of their reasons for arresting Paul, if you were to go to Acts 21, which is where you find a lot of the background for Ephesians, they brought uh, an Ephesian man, uh, sorry, they accused Paul of bringing an Ephesian man into the temple, uh, a Gentile. Uh, Potentially, for all intents and purposes, this man is one of the recipients of this letter. You see, the Jews, they hated the idea that there was a fresh reconciliation happening, that all of a sudden the rotten outsider who you don't associate with is now loved. They're now a member of God's household. They're now in. As I said before, they can use the fridge, put their feet up on the couch. But even more scandalous than this, that that the Gentiles could worship the same God in the same way, That, that a God who was exclusively for one group is actually a God for all the nations as well. And in particular, that Paul, as he says in Ephesians 3, was a key player in this, in spreading the news and explaining the mystery that has now been blown wide open. This mystery of Gentile inclusion, it was so foreign and scandalous to the Jews that if you were to go to Acts 21-28, they accused Paul of teaching everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place, presumably the temple. They had to hurl accusations at Paul. They weren't happy with him. They weren't too pleased with a gospel of grace which brings in the outsider. This plan that God had, according to verses 9 to 11, from eternity past. This was always going to be the case. They weren't privy to the sheer scale and magnitude of God's master plan. However, when God brings about this master plan, what's even more mind-blowing... Uh, What's even more amazing than this is that this gathering now, right, the new group of people, this new church made up of Jew and Gentile and all numbers of different people, this new church in 310 is now the instrument which God uses to make known his master plan, what Paul calls the manifold wisdom of God, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Just stop for a minute and consider this, right? That the church, right, this, if you look around at each other today, this is how God makes known his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. 
Now, we don't know if Paul is talking about angels or demons. Uh, he mentions both of those things in Ephesians. I'm fairly convinced it's, it's angelic host uh, or any other number of heavenly beings that we're not told about. But regardless, there's an incredible sense in which Paul's implying that even these heavenly beings, right, with their close proximity to God, even they weren't privy to God's amazing plan of salvation in all of its fullness. But now they see it, get this, through the church, through the gathering of God's people here today, you and me. There's a sense in which we're being watched, that the manifold wisdom of God is being revealed simply through us gathering. The hosts of heaven are watching, going, wow, isn't that amazing? Look at this. The church is the instrument through which the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms see the manifold wisdom of God. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, I think it has pretty far-reaching implications because if you ever think that going to church can be ordinary, if this is just another thing that you have to get yourself out of bed in the morning, if you think it's kind of drab or unimportant... Like, I, don't, I don't know what you guys did during lockdowns, but I can tell you what we did back at home. We, uh, we went online church doors, we followed the rules of the land and we started streaming things, sometimes pre-recording sermons, sometimes live. But we eventually came back to meeting in person. And when we did, we still had an online option for people that were a little bit worried. And there were many, I would argue, that stayed watching online when they really could have returned. I don't know if this is your experience. I don't know if for some of you, church, it just isn't worth prioritising in your week or when a slight competing influence comes in, like the kids' soccer game or whatever else it is, we're constantly seeing Sunday sports becoming a reality now, and many Christian parents are going to have to come to grips with that fairly soon. But I think if this is you, then meditating on verse 10 is something well worth doing. That God chose his church, he chose his gathering to show all the powers and authorities in the heavenly realms his manifold wisdom. And by God's grace, we're still meeting together today, 2,000 years later doing this. We're still kicking and we will continue to exist as a bunch of outsiders now brought in as a testament to God's amazing wisdom and love all the way until we see Christ return. Now, some of you, when we think about how, how do we know this, uh, this mystery revealed? Surely there were clues in the Old Testament. You are right. Uh, some of you who love your Old Testament, love your biblical theology, will say to me, it's not exactly a mystery. I mean, you, you see God promising to do this way back in Genesis 12 to Abraham, saying that he would bless who? The nations in 12.3, in that very, very famous part of Genesis. You might skip forward and see King Solomon blessing or being a blessing to the nations as the Queen of Sheba comes and receives wisdom from him. Uh, you see many other examples, in fact, of non-Jews coming, committing themselves to the Jewish God. Go through the genealogies and you'll see names there of non-Jewish people who were welcomed in. But I think Paul's point here in Ephesians 3 is that none of this Nothing could have prepared anybody to grasp the sheer size, scope, and magnitude of God's plans as he blew open the floodgates and offered salvation to everybody, everywhere. And it's not just that they're coming in and tacking themselves on to another people of God. Rather, it's going out to the whole world 
and offering everyone complete, free and open access, equivalent to anybody else in the church, simply through faith in the person and work of Jesus. And this is effectively where Paul goes. If you read in verse 12, he says, In Jesus, through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. You know, that's something not even the Jews could do. They had so many rituals and things in place to make sure that they were clean before they could even get near to God. And you remember at the crucifixion, uh, one of my favourite parts of the gospel, when Jesus is crucified, you get this famous sign of the curtain temple, uh, the temple curtain, sorry, that covered the Holy of Holies, being torn from top to bottom. It symbolised this necessary separation between sinful man and a holy God, where sinners could not approach God on their own terms. But when Christ was crucified, it was torn all the way, And I feel like this is perhaps what Paul has in mind here when he says, through faith in Jesus, we can now approach God, the God, untamable, fierce God with freedom and confidence. We can go straight to the place where God dwells. In other words, God's plan was so humongous, it didn't just gather all the nations in through faith in Jesus, but it means all the nations gathered in can now go upwards and approach God with boldness. We can approach him as our heavenly father, knowing with full assurance that we will be accepted. Are you beginning to grasp just how big today's passage is, this way and that way? It's a text which, if you were to read it over and over, you'll realise it's not something to be handled lightly. There's some pretty amazing stuff going on in here that we can never take for granted. And so all of this... Uh, All of this forms Paul's case to the Ephesians, his writing to, not to be discouraged. Don't be discouraged by my imprisonment, is what he's saying. All my sufferings, they're nothing. All the worldly sufferings on account of being a follower of Jesus are nothing when compared with God's amazingly rich love now revealed in Christ Jesus. This mystery now blown open. And so in all of this excitement, uh, Paul, he wrestles with some pretty heavy themes that have some very real and practical implications for all of us here today. In all of this excitement, Paul lays out the immeasurable riches of God's love for us in Jesus, and it leads him then to burst out in praise, which is the last section we have here today, uh, which is also the third point. Now, I myself, I'm a pretty flat person emotionally. Um, I feel highs and lows, but it's kind of compressed into sort of a middle ground. Uh, Perhaps I don't feel things as much as I should, and maybe I need to ask for God's help with that. But in those rare moments when I do get very excited, uh, when I get overjoyed, uh, you can tell the signs that I'm doing this because I might start, I don't know, talking faster. You know, my leg might start to jitter a little bit when I'm sitting in the chair. You know, perhaps I get a bit fidgety. On the really, really excited occasions, I I can just get up and I can run and not get tired, run for kilometres on end. These are the signs that I'm on cloud nine, the signs that I'm just super pumped. Well, here at the end of Ephesians 3, Paul, he's, he's not a runner as far as I can tell. Maybe he was, who knows, we're not told. But he bursts out into a praise to God in writing. 
And this is stuff that should really excite us. This is stuff, when we read this in a moment, this should get us jumping out of our seats, you know, clapping above our heads, doing the whoop whoops or the amens, you know, all the stuff that we don't do as Presbyterians up north. We've seen that Paul, he prays for his readers' maturity. We've seen that he prays that they would understand this love that surpasses understanding that we will be searching for and plumbing the depths of for eternity. We've seen why this is the case in verses 1 to 13, right? This mystery of Gentile inclusion and free and open access to God. And all of this leads Paul to burst into spontaneous praise in verses 20 and 21. Now, the technical term, uh, if you were to read that, is called a doxology, right? It's a short expression of praise to God, uh, an outpouring of praise. Some churches might do this at the end of a service. Some churches will sing it at the end of a service. And this is the type of thing we have here in 20 to 21. Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, that's huge, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now reading that, it might feel a little bit over the top. We might feel that Paul is perhaps asking a little too much of God. I mean, would you struggle to pray this? Would, would you, can you give God all that you ask or imagine and confidently go, this is actually okay? I know personally I struggle with this a little bit especially the part about doing immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, because I can imagine quite a lot. More than this, I think churches have actually abused this. Right? They, they grab verses like these to talk about prosperity and health and wealth. I can ask God for whatever I want, and he will grant that to me. What great news is this? Is this what Paul is saying? Well, not quite, because... Paul, remember, he's in jail. We have to keep in mind the context here. Paul's not saying that, that if I just pray hard enough, I can guarantee that God will break me out of prison. And God did do this in Acts a couple of times. But Paul's not saying that, that I can guarantee this, that I've got on a leash, and if I give him all I ask or imagine, he will absolutely grant that to me. And his suffering is the answer to that. And yet at the same time, there is a very real sense in which it is impossible for our prayers ever to be over the top as well. You see, that's the nature of this entire chapter. When we consider that God's love is so big that it surpasses knowledge, that our access to God the Father is so free we can ask him anything. In fact, in verse 12, this idea of approaching with freedom and confidence, this word for freedom here can literally be translated freedom of speech. Right? It's a speech that conceals absolutely nothing. And so Paul, he takes up this offer, this offer of freedom of speech for the Father, and he affirms the greatness of God's character, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. That is, we don't have to conceal anything when we speak to our great Father. And so Paul, knowing this, what does he pray for? He can ask anything he wants, anything in the whole world. What does he ask God for here, for all of us? He prays that we would be strengthened out of the glorious riches of God's grace. That we would chart the course, keep the faith, standing firm. It sounds fairly simple, and yet it is so profound. 
This is the goal of life. This is really where the buck stops for us as Christians, that we would be strengthened and matured in the riches of God's love, that we would follow him day by day through faith for the rest of our days. Really, this is quite an amazing prayer. That would be strengthened to follow Jesus, to know God's love, something that enables us to keep our eyes on the prize, to keep the end goal in sight and not be weighed down by what's immediately in front of us, and in so doing then, not be discouraged by worldly sufferings or temptations that want to strip us away from him. And Paul, he uses his own example of imprisonment for the sake of the gospel. He ends up saying, despite this fact, I'm going to burst out in praise to God in verses 20 to 21. His imprisonment really, it means nothing for him. Can I say, if you were to preach Jesus out there and someone were to take you into the clinker for the night, how would you feel? What if it was for more than a night? What if living for Jesus meant that you were guaranteed to be locked away? Would you burst out in praise like Paul's doing here? You see, Christian maturity, it involves seeing the power and love of God as having such immense value that worldly issues basically appear like a dish of fish fingers alongside the incredible rich feast God has for us in Christ. So as we finish up, I want to ask, it's worth asking all of us, I think, actually, including myself, how are we doing at this? How are we doing at standing firm in Christ? Do we pray that we would grasp something of the unknowable riches of God's love every day? Do we wake up looking forward to hearing from God from his word? Are we praying for one another here in this room? When was the last time you prayed for other people in your church? Perhaps for the person that you said hello to this morning, or maybe even more to the point, the person that you avoid each week when you come here. Do you pray for each other that you would be faithfully, diligently growing together? Are you praying that you would be strengthened to follow him despite the worries and temptations of the world? Or are we praying that God will take away the temptations of the world? In what ways are the truth of the gospel helping you to keep all worldly discouragement and doubts into perspective. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, strengthen us and mature us with your power so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. Lord, help us with the power of your spirit to grasp the incredible riches we have in Christ and may this help us to treasure your gospel beyond anything the world can offer or tempt us with. Lord, to you be all glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.